Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. of Man on the Post. Uh, I'm your host Chris. Uh, with me I've got Adam. Hello. How are you? Good, thank you. Good, good, good. Right, but that's not why it's special, even though it's all special when you're on. With me this week uh, I've got from zonalmarking.net, I've got author of The Mixer and his new zonal marking book. I've got Michael Cox. Hi Chris. Hi Adam. How... Hi. How are you doing? Yeah, very good, thank you. Um, off season, so not too much work but uh you expect better weather than this for the off season so yeah yeah it's not it's not a bad you know it's not i don't feel like i'm missing out on a nice summer evening it's, it's raining very heavily so i'm more than happy to be here discussing football with you guys good i can see outside your window um so yeah you've either got gray weather outside or boris johnson on the telly yeah yeah exactly that's a good <laughs> that's a good way of putting it yeah uh so you're here to talk about your new book it's called zone and working isn't it yes um which is also the name of your website. Why, why zonal marking? Is that your preferred method of man marking at a corner? <laughs> no, um, it was just kind of like a good, you know, a tactical term and also, you know, a phrase that pundits used to kind of uh, complain about constantly on Match of the Day. So it, it worked as quite good kind of almost advertising every time. You know, Mick <laughs> McCarthy was big on that. Like he, every time he was a, I think he was a pundit at the 2010 World Cup. And he'd just constantly moan about Zonal marking in his deep Yorkshire <laughs> accent. And it was just very good, yeah, advertising. So it kind of worked. <laughs> well, we do we're a website called Man on the Post, so that works for us every now and then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you, uh, if you were Michael Cox manager, are you a Zonal Marker or a man-to-man marker? Well, I think probably a bit of, a bit of both. I mean, even sides that use man-to-man marking at corners always have a, a man on the post and be kind of a couple of guys at the near post, you know, defending that space. So I think probably a mixed system is, is yeah. the way to go, but it's one, it's a little bit like any football tactic. You've got to do it to be, you know, to suit the players at your disposal, you know, the same way that you can't have a completely defined formation. You know, you've got to adjust to, you know, if the players aren't comfortable with it, then you're probably using the wrong system. Fair enough. Uh, this is the bit where we sort of blow smoke up your bottom a little bit because um, I'm not huge on tactics. Uh, I have not, I've got a copy of Inverting the Pyramid. I've yet to read it because for fear it would go completely utterly over my head. I avoided buying the mixer for a long, long time. I thought the same reason might happen. Adam taught me into buying it and I bought it and the first chapter was about the back pass rule, which took me straight back to my sort of teens. Um, so even if you're not particularly into tactics uh as a whole i mean both these books are definitely for you it's as much about people as it is about um about numbers isn't it 
Yeah, well, I'm really glad you said that, Chris. Thanks. I'm kind of aware that uh, the titles of the books can make them seem a little bit dry or a little bit geeky. Well, they are geeky, to be fair. But um, yeah, it's, it's hopefully about the people and the, the cultures and storylines and, and how they relate to tactics rather than just the kind of raw you know, theory behind it. So yeah, I tried to make them light and readable despite being, um, you know, hopefully covering a lot of ground and getting through a lot of uh, information. Can you be emotional with tactics? Or is it just, you've got to be sort of hard and analytical with them, um, sort of fullback is here and central defender is here. Are they sort of dots on a, on a sort of flip chart? Well, I guess with match analysis for a specific game, fairly kind of blunt and you've got to be quite specific and dry but yeah once you're doing it on a kind of wider level and looking at you know the development of teams and players and managers over a certain period of time of course there's kind of storylines that come into it so yeah in a book you can be a little bit more attached and you know have your favorites and yeah it's been it's been interesting sometimes people have, have said you know there's reading the book there's clearly you know some managers i like and some i dislike and they usually write about about that so <laughs> clearly some emotion comes across <laughs> yeah no that's right no but from a managerial point of view if you're a manager um placing your tactics that i suppose emotion must come into it at some point because we're all emotional human beings aren't we but i suppose you have to try and be as analytical as possible don't you yeah i guess so but i think you know, being a manager is all, all about finding the balance between strategy and man management. And I think that's, you know, as much as I'm someone who focuses on tactics, I think sometimes that's been overlooked in in recent years. Some managers have come over, someone like, for example, Andre Villas-Boas, who I think was a, a very good strategic manager at, at Porto, but clearly just didn't have the man management skills for Chelsea and maybe Tottenham, a slightly different case. So, yeah, there's always a balance to be found between... Uh, yeah, between the raw, hard strategy and, and being, a, yeah, a man manager. Okay. Do, do you find find that challenging when you're writing um, sort of match analysis about the, that on that sort of issue? Because I think, I always think that the uh, Arrigo Saki quote about tactics and I, I, being a conductor and it's your job to interpret the role, it sums it up very well, right? So that can sometimes make it very difficult if you're trying to perhaps write about it from that very blunt analytical point point of view because right you might question what the fullback's done but you, there's where's the line between sort of the responsibility right and yeah no i think that's a really good question or a really good point um the way i've tried to do analysis is i've i've tried to be quite careful all the time in in not saying that everything was the manager's design so i'd i'd kind of just say you know I kind of talk about a player moving deeper rather than necessarily the manager moved the player deeper because I just think that a lot of the time you don't know. And, and I quite, even if it's not always true, I just quite like the idea that players are kind of interpreting situations and positions and tactics themselves. And, and of course, the, the players at the top level are doing that all the time. So, yeah, it's like you say, it's always difficult to know uh, where tactics begin and end and where player responsibilities begin and end. So if your own personal background, for any sort of would-be budding journalists out there, did you start off as a coach with an interest in tactics and began writing from there, or did you always want to be a journalist, or how how did it work for you to get to where you, you are, are today? Yeah, just the, the second of those options, really. I, I kind of wanted to be a journalist and decided I wanted to write about football and um, 
yeah, I always thought that thought there was a lack of of writing about tactics and strategy in the game. So the you know the other sport I'm really into is cricket, and cricket coverage was always completely different. It was stats, it was facts, it was analysis. It was talking about tactics and strategy and how games developed. And yeah, I basically just started a, a blog really about you know that side of things related to football, and um, and tried to bring some kind of cricket coverage to football if you like and. And got into it that way. So it was, uh, yeah, I don't have a coaching background. It was, at one point, it was kind of a, yeah, I thought maybe get into that side of things just to kind of, you know, help my uh, help my writing. But, uh, yeah, I've always put that off. So I've, I've no coaching expertise or badges or anything. Did you have any um, sympathy for Peter Moores when he said we have to look at the data? <laughs> yeah, completely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I thought that was a really interesting thing, actually, especially because... Um, I mean, beyond the specifics of cricket and data, you know, sometimes snap judgments when you're emotional, you know, to go back to an earlier thing you said, sometimes snap judgments when you're emotional. If you're in that position, you can say something slightly out of turn and and it will, you know, well, ironically, I, I guess it will kind of be brought back up uh, again and again over the years, although the alternative of what he said is being brought up again and again over the years. So maybe it didn't help in that respect. But yeah, I, I have a lot of... Um, yeah, a lot of sympathy for for guys who do look at things that way. Yeah, there's no pictures in sonar marking or the mixer. Was that a deliberate thing? Um, I don't I don't need pictures to read books. By the way, I'm more than capable of reading a book. <laughs> it does make it sound does make it sound like you really need a picture. Did you want something to pop I, out as well? I, no, yeah, <laughs> ideally, I meant there's no diagrams. Sorry, it's probably what I meant to say. Yeah, no, I, a few people have commented on that. To be honest, with the first one, there were going to be diagrams, and then. Um, the, basically the book was just becoming too long like it was it went up to 500 pages when it was meant to be about 320 or 340 or something so basically the decision was just we can't you know we're running out of space here and the book's going to become too big so we went without and I, I don't think it made too much of a difference to the, to the way it, it read you know and and then for this one we just kept it the same so uh the, the slight exception to that is if any of your listeners are in japan the Japanese edition of the first book has um, has 25 diagrams in it because they insisted on it. So, um, yeah, if you're if you're particularly interested in the diagrams, but not the text, <laughs> then the uh, the Japanese one is the way to go. Next, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with what you said. I don't think I never at any point felt that it needed diagrams or that I was missing out. I've, <clears throat> if you compare that to the like like Chris mentioned earlier, the other sort of famous tactics book in inverting the pyramid there there's a this different sort of moving across that big sort of era the lexicon changes and sort of i i myself find it quite difficult to follow at times just what he's talking about when he talks about a halfback or a fullback so the diagram sort of helped me out there but yeah i didn't have that any sort of problem with that when i was very clear what a fullback was when reading the mixer or <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a good point. I, I completely have thought about that comparison and how you, yeah, you do need it for the 1930s or whatever because yeah, some of the positions don't don't have a modern equivalent. So yeah, I guess I guess he did need them for the inverting the pyramid. But like you say, the the modern the modern stuff is basically four four two and four three three and formations that everyone knows. So yeah, there was no real need. Okay, right. If we start on the book then, so Zonal Marking, it covers Holland from 92 to 96, Italy 96 to 2000, France 2000 to 04. 
Uh, Portugal 4 to 8, Spain 8 to 12, Germany 12 to 16, England 16 to 20. Now, I've not got as far as England, but I'm hoping for big things next year. So, <laughs> are, you, are you saying it's coming home, are you? Uh, it's nearer to home than it was five years ago, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, the, to be honest, the English sections are a little bit different. There was a big, there was kind of a debate about how quite how to do that last section. So I didn't want to do a complete England section because I'd, I'd done that in the mixer and I would have been going over old ground. So it's um, it's more of a, in a way, of a conclusion than a kind of final section. It's, it basically brings together the other six sections and say how they feature in English football. Um, and then, yeah, it's it's, it's kind of even named after the first book because I wanted to be kind of blunt about the fact that, um, yeah, I didn't want to go over old ground. There's a whole book about it that I've read uh, that I've written. So, yeah, but that said, it worked very well that a England did well last summer and got to the semi-finals, and b that the um, you know there was two all uh, English European ties uh, finals rather. Uh, in the champ- in the uh, European competition this season, so I I was cheering on the English side so that my uh, my book structure didn't look out of place. Could you just remind me who won the Champions League final? I've forgotten. Just, I can't remember who it was. See, I think it was it was a close game. I think Liverpool, Liverpool. got out the top. That's in the right. End. Adam, what's your yeah. sport? Just to get on with the next question, Chris. <laughs> I'm a Liverpool fan. He's an Everton fan. <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, so first chapter, Holland. It, it's dominated largely by um, Cruyff and Louis van Gaal, um, who, it's fair to say, didn't like each other. You talk a little <laughs> bit about how one they were competing for the same position, but is it that, or is it as much as um, they're two very similar personalities? They've got different football philosophies. They're two very similar personalities, so they're never destined to like each other. Because I, I kind of got the feeling they were very similarly driven people, but just coming from different ends of the spectrum, footballing-wise. Yeah, it's it's a complex relationship, and I'm not sure anyone has ever quite been able to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, it was a, a mixture of factors. One, as you say, um, Van Hal was kind of the understudy to Cruyff when they were players at Ajax, and Van Hal never made it at Ajax. Um, and then they briefed... Well, when Van Hal was starting out in coaching, they got along very well. And then there was a bit of a personal dispute, um, which I cover in the book, which I won't go into now. Um, and then later, they were basically the two coaches of of the two most revered teams in Europe, in Ajax and Barcelona. And as anyone who's followed international football for any period of time knows, Dutch people do often fall out. They do squabble. They do have rows. And they are honest and blunt. And they don't have this... Uh, they don't have any culture of, you know, politeness is the wrong word, but they don't go out of their way to, to smooth things over. They're happy to have squabbles, and, and that was just a part of both of their, their outlooks, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I can't remember, I can't imagine um, Johan Cruyff doing what Lou van Gaal did to, in the Bayern Munich changing rooms that time, but, <laughs> but I don't imagine Johan Cruyff having much hubris, but he obviously must have been arrogant to some extent to have that sort of level of debate it just it just never sort of crossed my mind till i read your book about him yeah i think both were yeah both were quite i mean there's a section in the book about quite what the dutch think is arrogant and what they think is just being dutch mm. which kind of sums up the the situation here but yeah i mean in a footballing sense they both believed in the kind of ajax way in terms of formations and strategies and and what to do in terms of you know, dominating possession, but the real debate was Van Hal was all about the collective and Cruyff 
was all of the individual and it's not too much of a stretch to to extend that to the fact that Van Al was not a talented individual player um, and therefore believed in the concept of the team and Cruyff was a very talented player and therefore felt that if you've got someone like George Hadji or Stoichkov or Romario then you've got to give them freedom from the system so in a footballing sense that was what they disagreed about uh, Would you say there are any parallels in their their relationship between sort of how it's evolved between Mourinho and Pep that you've got two people there who used to get on very well you've got one who was a star player one who's not and uh, yeah they've sort of divulged much further away from each other in terms of them their tactical approach now but there was a time when there were, these were two men who were singing off almost the same hymn sheet as well under Van Hal. yeah I think it's a really good point yeah yeah and um yeah, I mean, fits into the kind of playing and non-playing thing. You know, Guardiola was uh, was a good player and therefore was more inclined to to believe in the star power of individuals, I think. And Mourinho maybe less so. And, you know, I remember, I think, Jorge Valdano making a point when Benitez and Mourinho were dominating the, the Champions League as managers, what, 15 years ago now. You know, these guys were not great players. They don't believe in individual, you know, talent. They believe that you have to work as a team to um, to succeed. I think it's quite a good comparison, yeah. It's one of those approaches that it's either the Cruyff or the uh, Van Gaal approach. Is one of those more sort of suited to the Dutch psyche than the other, do you think? It's a good question. Um, yeah, I think... So I, I always think... imagine the Dutch being very sort of laid-back people, but obviously, sort of looking at their football teams. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But looking at their football teams, yeah. they're they're not. So I just wondered um, whether one was more sort of predisposed to the Dutch life or Dutch sort of psyche than the other. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Cruyff is clearly more typ- typically Dutch. The kind of counter argument to that is, I guess, Cruyff has been so influential that he's almost defined what being Dutch is in a footballing sense, and maybe in a wider sense. And yeah, there was a. I mean, there's a feeling in in the Netherlands that basically Van Hal is is not very Dutch. Is actually more German in style and more kind of um, autocratic and more about systems and yeah. I mean, there's there's a bit in the book where Cruyff actually praises his um, Cruyff praises Van Hal's Bayern Munich team much later on in in 2010, I think. And that was pretty much the first time he'd ever praised Van Howe. And I kind of took that to mean, yeah. I mean, the, the, the quote was something along the lines of he's really got the Bayern players to believe in his way or something like that, which I kind of took to mean Cruyff saying he's a bit German in style, basically. I was going to say, it would either have to be a backhanded compliment or you'd have to be getting a dig in at someone else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was what we tend to expect from the And. <laughs> Would Suriname have what a hell of a football team if they managed to keep hold of their players? That was the other thing I took from the uh, from this chapter as well. Who was that? Sorry, Suriname. How good a football team should they have had in the nineties? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. No, that was really interesting. Uh, good point. Yeah, I mean there was, um, yeah, I mean so many of those players. I didn't realise the extent to which so many had come over either when they were really young. I didn't realise that Davids and Sadoff were both born over there and. And of course, some of the some of the other players, their parents had had come over. So yeah, there's that was one of the many kind of interesting avenues that I almost couldn't explore because it went too far off the you know off the main thrust of the argument. But 
yeah, there's there's some interesting. There's actually a really good article on the Guardian website about two, maybe two years ago by Nick Miller who wrote about the almost the history of the, the Suriname football team, I think. And uh, yeah, at one stage they had a side that was basically a Dutch B team. You know, almost Senegal. People used to say about Senegal and France, but yeah, uh, yeah that was really interesting actually. Yeah. How long did Cruyff spend in Barcelona as a player? Do you attest to me that I think he was there for. Was he there for five years? Yeah. I don't. I'm just wondering whether um, climate has any part to play in sort of tactics as well. I mean, would Tiki Taka have evolved in somewhere like England or Northern Europe, or does it have to sort of come from a sunnier climate? Is that where Cruyff got some of his ideas from, or was that built within him from sort of total football back in the 70s? Yeah, a bit of both. I mean, he, you know, he he went to play under Renus Mikels at, uh, at Barcelona, so they they together were. We're taking the Dutch influence there, but yeah, I, I think the climate is a is a a key factor, and again, something that wasn't explored hugely in the book. But yeah, it's it clearly affects how your teams play. You know, not just in terms of the climatic conditions, but in terms of the effect that has on the pitch. It's just traditionally it was much more difficult to pass the ball in England because the pitches were boggy and the ball didn't roll, so you're better off hoofing out the pitch. <laughs> um and. Dennis Bergkamp gets a mention, as well, uh, and the later teams as well. Um, Ronald Koeman, did you say he was the best central defender? Was it of his time? Is that what, was that a quote? Or was that what, it was the goal-scoring defender, right? Yeah, yeah, the best. So he scored, I, I can't remember the exact number. 230. So, yeah, if we're both on that number, we're probably yeah. right. Um, which, yeah, which was, I think, more than Patrick Cliver and about... 30 less than Dennis Burkamp yeah. or something and yeah that yeah, sounds about right of course he took you know he took penalties and he took uh, free kicks but even so um, an incredible goal scoring tally and yeah someone who you know Guardiola says changed his perceptions of, of what a centre back could do and you see that influence in the type of players that uh, Guardiola plays at centre back now so with the like, with this Ajax team I think so the, the, the biggest takeaway for me again was like you say, it starts with the back pass rule and it, the, the biggest difference in terms of how football is being played at Ajax and perhaps more widely in, in Holland as opposed to the rest of Europe is this ability to have goalkeepers who are, are footballers and this Miss Van der, and Van der Sar being sort of the epitome of that. Um, why does it take everyone else so long to catch up to that? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I guess it was... Um... Yeah, I guess it it takes a while to train and it takes a while to be confident enough to do it. Um, but yeah, it was it was interesting to go back and you know trace the roots of Van der Sar and he was not uh, well he played outfield I think until his teenage years so he was very comfortable on the ball and yeah Cruyff was a big believer in that um, both in Stanley Menzo who was the, the guy who played in goal for Ajax before Van der Sar. And also at Barcelona, he played uh, Carlos Busquets, of course, father of Sergio a lot. And watching the videos, I mean, Busquets was not very good at sh- uh, shot stopping at all. I mean, made some really terrible mistakes, but was really comfortable in the ball. And yeah, that you just see that uh, influence very gradually spread to um, other European countries. I remember that 1991 European Cup final. In the overriding memory I've got is Mark Hughes running past him and sort of smashing it in from yeah. like narrowest of angles that was a horror show that was wasn't it yeah i went back and watched that game and Busquets makes 
I think four quite bad errors, potentially for both of the goals and and two others he completely gets away with. So, yeah, I must say I, I couldn't really recall his um, his career, but he was kind of exactly, you know, he kind of worked for the argument of the book that Cruyff was favouring these guys who were passers rather than, you know, good in their defensive position. And he was just completely forgiving of flappy goalkeepers so long as they could pass from the back. I mean, it sounds extraordinary to sort of British ears, but again, maybe that's something something that he he learnt while at Barcelona as a player or as part of the total football team. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think there's... I don't think this was included in the book, but there there is a direct quote from Cruyff where he's like, yeah, I prefer my goalkeeper 30 yards off his line and if he gets lobbed four times a season, that's fine because he'll cut out so many balls in front of him. So he was... You know, it was almost a cow from him. He was quite pragmatic, to... isn't it? Very Van Harlesker. Yeah, 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 completely. Yeah, he was. It was a kind of uh, yeah attitude rather than um, just being, um, you know, dogmatic. Dogmatic is the wrong word, but rather than just saying, "Oh well," you know, he was prepared to accept that risk for the for the reward, I guess. Yeah. And um, I'm looking at. I'm guessing of all the countries you've covered, Holland's got the population. Holland's got the smallest population of all the other teams. Is there anything? tactically that they well not anything tactically because obviously they were but what within them making them bring out these players uh, to such a higher standard than what they really should have done given their population it, it, where did the total football idea sort of fit into that if it did and um, you would have thought with the population of what it is other countries should be able to have the capacity to outthink or out resource them or something like that yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think, um, you know, from the days of Mikel's, it was it was very established that Ajax were going to play in a very specific way and put a big emphasis on bringing through young players. And it just it just seems to me that there is a big focus on education in the Netherlands and, and not just in a footballing sense, but in terms of just developing kids and developing people. And maybe you don't have that elsewhere in Europe. Maybe there's a more... Um, flippant approach to education and it's also true that in in holland it's it's not it's not like here where it's just a kind of working class game it's i think there's more scope for talk about philosophy and and tactics and and coaching players which yeah again is compared to england is maybe uh something that gets a bit lost mm. so, um <clears throat> you talk quite a bit about about Dennis Bergkamp in this period and sort of I was very interested to see that sort of that whole term that is used quite clearly in this country as sort of a shadow striker is something essentially a term that was invented to describe Bergkamp his time there um I just had a question that sort of he obviously had his time at Inter Milan and you talk about sort of the 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 pitfalls of why that wasn't so great for him and then his why he chose to then come to England but when he came to England, he was coming to a time where, as you sort of alluded to there, that we, it, sort of the level of intelligent debate around football wasn't quite as high and sort of not quite to the extent that you, you, you hear in the 30s or even 50s when sort of we, newspapers would still write formations as two, three, five, no matter what they were. But <laughs> we, weren't far, we weren't far away from everyone being 4-14, no matter what the... the was going on and I wonder whether despite all of his his brilliance and he clearly was that do you think that that Bergkamp 
had a little bit of benefit of the fact that he playing in that Arsenal side alongside first Ian Wright and then Thierry Henry. And if he didn't have these sort of prolific goal scorers alongside him, would he have survived in a time when maybe the media and fans would have been a lot more demanding in a sort of, why is this guy playing up front and not sort of delivering a goal output? Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I mean, it's it's very obvious that he changed his game a lot when he arrived in England. It's interesting to go back and look at his uh, his goal-scoring form in the Eredivisie, where he wins the top goal-scorer award three years in a row. I think once once jointly with Romario and then two outright, which, you know, he never got close to that in England. He just wasn't a goal-scorer. So, yeah, I think he, he benefited as well from the fact that Arsenal always played quick strikers who were going in behind and stretching the defence that way while Burkamp was playing between the lines. And I don't think there was so much focus then on on really keeping it tight in that zone. There was always a big emphasis on, you know, is it a centre-back who comes out and marks him, or is it a defensive midfielder who drops in? But, you know, you don't really have that debate now. It's just about keeping, com- you know, keeping compact and squeezing that space. It was clear that a lot of English teams didn't know how to deal with him and Cantona and, Ber- and um, Zola, who were kind of all playing roughly the same role at that, at that point in time. They just got so much space. But that's a good a good example, as you say there, to uh, to a point of sort of forcing them into a four four two. Well, Cantona and Burkamp were very much classed as one of the two strikers in their team that they were playing. Whereas, uh, uh, from memory, Zola was shifted out and would have been reported as being a right winger, right? I'm misremembering that. I was only about eight. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean Zola was Zola was sometimes shifted about, but yeah, you're right. I mean that that first Arsenal team you know, with Ian Wright or Anelka coming in sometimes was was always considered four four two, whereas now I think we'd we'd probably call that a four two three one with the you know, two holding midfielders and the wire players pushing on. So yeah, you're right. It was you know, the I think the change in formation was kind of inspired by the positional tendencies of, of those players to a certain extent. First time I remember match of the day, uh putting any team up as anything other than four four two, I think was Mourinho's Chelsea. Okay. Before that, I just seem to remember everything being four four two when they posted the teams up on match of the day on Saturday night. Yeah, I mean it was. Um, yeah, I remember sometimes just when you see little tweaks, you know, in in formations, it was kind of interesting. But uh, yeah, it was um, it was fairly fairly uh, strict. I mean, there was a few kind of three five twos at the turn of the century. Martin O'Neill and Glenn Hoddle like three at the back, but yeah, you didn't really see a four three three very often. Should we get on a plane and jump to Italy? Well, I just want, I, yeah, I can get us there. I can get us there because I just wanted to talk about one thing <laughs> I thought you wrote that was um, was very astute and something that I hadn't really thought about. And um, it was about how you talk about the sort of the dismantling of, along with the the Bosman rule coming in, but also the dismantling of the sort of quotas on domestic players, or especially European players across across Europe, and how that sort of freed up players to to move a lot more and I think that you would see that that's the kind of thing that allowed Ajax right to develop that team a lot more than they would be able to nowadays because the demand for these players was a lot less because everyone knew they were great quality players but if you can only fit one two of them into your your team you have to be very picky about what you're picking up whereas Famous as, as everyone's talking about now, this sort of 2019 vintage IX is a, being dismantled in front of our eyes, and we're sort of it's going to be gone before we've even really seen it. And then that's what allows sort of 
these next the next one is to import the players that are doing well, right? And you sort of see this with Seedorf and uh, others going across to Italy, Chris. <laughs> Plain as language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right about about that. I mean, the Bosman rule really changed everything, and um, yeah, kind of led to the breakup of that Ajax side gradually over the next couple of years. Um, and yeah, before that, you had the three foreigner rule, so. As a general rule, teams wanted to get in foreign attackers because they were kind of more... That was really where you got your upgrade. You know, if you, if you got three almost... I guess it's a little bit like what they have in the MLS now with the designated players where, you know, those guys are outside the wage cap. If, you, if you're going to get anyone, you generally get in attackers because I think they they just make the, the difference individually more. One thing that surprised me with the Bosman contract, is, or Bosman rule, is you don't get players signing... Um, short-term contracts, so you don't get Cristiano Ronaldo or Messi signing a sort of only a two-year contract as opposed to a sort of three or four-year contract. Because if the pl- power is then with the players to move, I'm surprised that transfers, ha- oh, the transfer fees have moved up so much. I thought they would come down as players were more willing to let their contract run down. And we're 25 years after Bosman, are we? And it doesn't seem to be doing any changing any different. Yeah, I mean, that's completely what everyone thought at the time. You're right. I mean, um, I remember there being reports saying that it was going to be a big um, a big threat to lower league teams because basically you wouldn't have transfer fees, so they wouldn't get the, the money coming down the pyramid. But, it, I mean, this is certainly not something I'm an expert on, but it, it feels over the last couple of years we've, we've been in a situation where more players have kind of run their contract down in the last couple of years. When you look at Ozil and Sanchez and... Um, a couple of others as well. De Gea, I guess, is in that situation now. And then they end up getting absolutely massive contracts. So, yeah, it's it's a funny situation. I do wonder whether more players will try and run their contracts down now. Um, because, like you say, the, the, the transfer fees are, are just incredible now. It's, it's the injury risk, right? It's the, the, the risk of injury or, or your form dropping away, sort of. It's the bird in the hand as opposed to... <laughs> yeah. That is true. Yeah. Um, okay, so Italy, again, I've written down sort of tactics versus personality, same as what we had with sort of Van Harland um, and Cruyff, because you talk about, uh, I think it's a Dino, which is Roberto, isn't it? Uh, versus, Abadje versus uh, Lippi and um, Rigo Sacchi. So you've got, again, you've got the sort of, the sort of laissez-faire flair player against um, the sort of regimented uh, the regiment, regimented managers, and it's similar to what we've just been talking about in Holland, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. There was a, a couple of interesting personality clashes. Bad Joe against almost anyone he he gets managed by, and also between some of the managers. I mean, you know, um, you know, Saki's attempts to kind of make Italian football more Dutch, and and that's massively resisted by someone like Trapattoni, who's who's always one with the old school Italian way. So. Yeah, there was there was some interesting personality clashes here, but but generally they they kind of had their roots in tactical debates, which was um, yeah, it was a nice chapter to write about because they were generally squabbling about tactics rather than purely about personality. So it was it was cool. I, I really like what you're saying there about Saki's attempts to try and make it more Dutch, involved not just on the pitch, but also very much taking the sort of sniping from the sidelines, <laughs> very, very much. <laughs> Yeah, that is true. I mean, um, yeah, Saki was, to be fair, I think Saki generally tried to stick to kind of strategic criticisms rather than kind of personal stuff. But 
yeah there was he obviously upset the apple cart and and the kind of older generation of managers like Trapattoni and um lippy to a certain extent and some of the older guys who who weren't as significant were were definitely not saki fans it, he was very much the sort of the the coal face of a culture war in terms of what it means to be playing italian football right yeah exactly yeah that's the that's the whole thing it sometimes the tactical debate in italy at that point didn't seem to be about really what was most effective but what was most typically italian you know it was um a country that was absolutely used to being in the forefront of tactical development and the idea that they were behind the times in some ways was was yeah considered an affront to you know the pride of the country i suppose i think it was gap marcotti that said that there's the last 30 years has been or 40 years has been uh three great tactical innovators uh cruyff at barcelona um Guardiola at Barcelona and Saki at Milan. Is that fair or is there anyone who's missed out there? No, I think he's probably right. I mean, he's certainly right with with Cruyff and Mikels and and with Saki. I guess, yeah, I guess, I guess Guardiola has to be put up there as well. Um, the, the interesting thing with Guardiola is you can see the kind of the roots of his influence. Um, and kind of harks back to the the Cruyff side, obviously, but I think also Van Howe as well. Um, I, I was going to mention that when we when we got to the Spain section, that it's almost as much as Guardiola likes to, whether it's a an image thing, but he very much likes to be seen as at the altar of, of Cruyff. But it does seem that his beliefs, when you actually examine them, are more Van Gaal than they are Cruyffian. Yes. I completely agree. Let's let's save that because I I completely agree <laughs> with that. But uh, yeah, yeah. Um, you also mentioned about Del Piero and Inzaghi not exactly getting on, <laughs> taking up the same space, stealing yeah. each other's goals, all that sort of thing. How do you sort a personality problem out with tactics? Or can you? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I guess the you know the funny thing was they they were kind of obviously very different types of players and in a pure footballing sense I think actually got on quite well with the exception of some games where yeah Inzaghi wasn't passing basically but they you know they did work quite well together in terms of one was creating and one was goal scoring and much as they squabbled and fell out and and obviously that's fun to look at because it kind of fits into the you know help shape the perceptions of what Inzaghi is also they were they were really good together so I think it was a difficult one for Lippi and, and Ancelotti at the time because it was basically just uh, was it was what Inzaghi was. He was a pure goal scorer, and and Del Piero's job was just to feed him and and probably couldn't expect the ball match in return. There's only one winner with that though, isn't there? Del, Del Piero is the golden boy of Juventus, wasn't he? Inzaghi was never going to win that one. Yeah, exactly. And um, of course, he was. Yeah, kind of, kind of replaced before he left when they brought in Trezeguet in 2000 and then Inzaghi left for Milan the next year. So, yeah, Juventus have always been very good at moving on from players if they need to and Inzaghi was one victim of that. Yeah. Um, speaking of Juventus, I mean, we might do, I think, we, the sort of number 10s earlier on, but um, Zidane, uh, I remember when he went to um, 
from when he went to Juventus because, of course, Blackburn Rovers didn't want him, did they? Or Jack Walker certainly didn't want him. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a problem with sort of fitting in a um, uh, such a talented player into a specific formation. And I was making sort of little notes at work while I was writing this. And next to this, I, uh, next to uh, Zidane, I wrote Joe Cole because the type of player that Joe Cole was, well, I'm not comparing Joe Cole and talent-wise to Zidane, but the kind of player that Joe Cole was, if he had been um, born in a different country, would he have had a more successful or more consistent career than being a number 10 in England at the time? Yeah, I think certainly in terms of being a number 10, um, we didn't really feel players in that role much. And yeah, he was always kind of shoved wide or shoved in the centre. Um, I must say, I never, I didn't really see that much of Joe Cole when he was really young and, you know, obviously I saw him a lot for West Ham, but I never completely saw the Joe Cole that everyone else kind of mourns the loss of, if that makes sense. I, I, I thought he was a really good player at Chelsea under Mourinho in, in a very hard working wide role. And, and, you know, those people who saw him at West Ham will say he should have been more than that. But to be honest, I, yeah, I never personally saw that Joe Cole that was never quite fulfilled his potential personally. You think this is all built off the stories of Alex Ferguson asking about what 15-year-old Joe Cole was up to? Yeah, supposedly. And there was also some like England youth game, I think, where he scored seven goals in one game, which, I mean, that's, you know, must have been quite a sight. But if you didn't see it for yourself, it's tough to kind of, you know... Chris saw the best. Of, you saw the best of Joe Cole, right? <laughs> Liverpool, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It was a fun, fun season. Yeah. <laughs> I don't often look at Zidane and think of Joe Cole, but it sort of came to me that he, for me, I mean, for me, Zidane is the greatest player to have kicked a football. So it surprised me a little bit. Certain parts of your book, when you talk about um, Zidane, both France and both with Juventus as well, because I don't think you don't. I mean, maybe sort of. I'm thinking back nostalgically with this because you see, he's, I remember everything he did was effortless and all the turns he did, you talk about his own specific unique turn that he managed to do. None of that was showboating. Everything for me when he did something like that was part of an end product rather than sort of taking the piss out of an opponent or something like that. And then I kind of, I mean, you quote him, so obviously you're not sort of, you didn't sort of do him down in anything other than his own words, but um, is your opinion of him obviously as, as great as mine or do you think that maybe he wasn't the player that he's sometimes made out to be or was he, did he fit in well at Juventus with their uh, formation yeah I mean I think aesthetically he was brilliant and he tended to be very good at major tournaments for France um, but his club career was quite patchy you know he had periods of you know certainly two years spell at Juventus where he was really poor and it was a really big issue you know Lippi and uh, Ancelotti were asked every week, you know, why isn't Zidane playing well? How can you get the best out of him? And and that really, that was between 98 and 2000, which is, you know, is between a tournament where he scored the, the two goals in the final and a tournament at Euro 2000, which as far as I'm concerned was unquestionably his peak. And then there was also a dip at Real Madrid where um, I think that was more of a tactical thing. Obviously, Real were kind of, doing some, you know, making some very odd signings and, and losing Makaleli and losing the balance of the side. So I've got more sympathy for his, you know, that kind of slump. But I think, it, basically, I think he was a much better international player than he was a club player. I think he, um, yeah, he was always great at major tournaments. But when you look at 
every season he played. I think he probably had three or four seasons at the real top level um, and also a few seasons where he was a little bit underwhelming. So do you think is that because he couldn't fit into the system properly at UVA or because, or because management were using him wrongly or was it an error on the players' part? No, I don't think a, a tactical thing so much because, you know, he, he almost got to develop his own role and he got to play in that number 10 position at Juve that he liked and they kind of switched from 4-4-2 to 4-3-1-2 to give him that extra protection behind. I just think he was one of those players who, you know, he, he always tried audacious things and, and you can't always do that consistently and, you know, sometimes it doesn't doesn't come off. I, I think he's similar in that way to to someone like Ozil, who, who isn't rated as highly. Um, and if you see Ozil at major tournaments, he's usually been very good. But when you see his, you know, some of his seasons for Arsenal, there he faces the same questions that Zidane got 20 years ago about why he isn't doing it more consistently. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> I, I just wondered whether he, there was some sort of... In my head, I was wondering whether there was a similarity maybe with someone like Raquel May, who... Where, where, especially when you were talking about how Zidane was never, or it seemed to struggle with this sort of the shadow of Platini, it, very similar to the way that Raquel Mahe did with with Maradona, and and lots of Argentinian players have done until sort of Messi blew that apart. Um, and I hadn't sort of realised that that Platini had loomed so largely over his his career like that, and. I did, I did like, like you said, Chris. Those are interesting. I picked up on sort of questioning whether I needed to reevaluate my my opinions on Zidane. When you hear some of those sort of statistical output, it does make you wonder whether some of it's a bit sort of hyperbole. Basically, you just told us the truth about Santa, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it's interesting you said that about Platini. I didn't realise the extent to which that was a thing, and there was such a big emphasis upon. You know he's not the he's not as good as Platini as a number ten as a French number ten as a Juve number ten. Um, so yeah, I, I think he's probably the only player in the book that really you probably read it and think less of him than he did before. You know, I'd like to think most of it is you know a celebration of football and complimentary about football. But yeah, I think I think Zidane's um, Zidane's club career basically was just not not as good as it should have been considering his his talent and considering his international form. And in terms of other sort of talented players playing in this year, I just wonder, what, what do you think it was about Italian football that allowed sort of the, again, that work with Shadow Strike, that Trek Artistra to sort of flourish? Because that is sort of a big part of, of what you talk about when, you talk in, when you're discussing the Italian game. Yeah, good question. I mean, their kind of love of the Trecotista just goes back so far and was just such an ingrained part of of the Catanaccio system they played where, you know, there was obviously very, very defensive outlook, but they do give this one player license to express himself. And I don't know, I probably can't completely answer why that position has, has been such a big part of Italian football, but if you explain to someone who doesn't know anything about football that Italian football is kind of defensive and they don't care about beauty or the style, it's very out of keeping with what you think about Italy as a country. You think of Italy as mm. a beautiful country, beautiful people, beautiful cars. You know, it's, it's a kind of stylish country. So it's almost like the Trecortista was the last, you know, the, the kind of uh, 
the sole evidence of that in a in a you know a footballing culture that maybe doesn't represent the country as much as for example dutch football represents holland do you think totty's the last one of those or do you think that it's something that could still be around um i i mean I think there will still be some players in that mould. I think they'll probably have to adapt themselves and sometimes play in different positions. And to be fair, I think he always did that well. Sometimes he had to play up front and he did. Sometimes he played on the left and he did. So, yeah, I think there's um, I think there's room for players like that. But I just, I don't think they get the, the kind of, they don't get the team built around them as they maybe did in, in Baggio's era. Hmm. Should get on a plane again. <laughs> we'll, take, we'll, take, we'll, take, we'll take the ashes of club football Zinedine Zidane and we'll sort of rebuild him in his native yes. country shall we let's go let's go do that shall we so um, we'll have it, head over to France um, oh, you talked about Nicholas and Elka quite a lot I was really pleased with that yep oh no that light is too bright I was going to turn <laughs> the light on but it looked a bit scary um, yes Anelka. Um why are you a, are you an Anelka fan based upon uh, Liverpool or I liked him when he was at Liverpool. I just... Uh, it's the enigma of him, I like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the obvious talented player, but... Uh, it's, you can't say you know him. After 20 years of playing football, mm. no one can say... I mean, I, I don't think I've ever heard him say more than 10 words. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, he got quite a... Quite a good section devoted to him in both books, actually. But yeah, he was an interesting character, someone who... Before I researched the first book, I didn't realise the extent to which he considered himself a, a link-up player rather than a speedy player going in behind and basically wanted to play the Burkamp role and was always pushed forward to be um, to be an outright number nine. So, yeah, he was, you know, he fits into the kind of French model of striker that, that emerged at the start of the century with Henri, of course, and and Sylvain Viltord and Sidney Govu and basically all these guys who were just terrifyingly quick more than anything else. And yeah, I think that was a, a big difference between French and Italian football. Just the emphasis upon speed was, um, yeah, a, a, a kind of big, uh, a big game changer. Because you've seen the, um, have you seen Netflix documentary Black, White, Blanc about? Yes. Yes. yes, so the whole sort of cultural melting pot of that. So it it all comes together at a perfect time. I mean, is it any coincidence that you had those sort of three cultural um, identities at France's most successful time? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that it's, um, as you say, that, that film or that documentary covers it very well. Um, and yeah, you do get this different, different, um, yeah, amalgamation of styles. And it's clear that, they do develop a type of striker that they didn't have previously. When you look at 98 and they just had Givash up front who was, you know, slow and certainly not prolific. And then you've got these, these new guys who all come from similar backgrounds, generally the, the son of immigrants from generally the Caribbean, sometimes Africa. Um, and yeah, they, they bring something different, whether that's because of their backgrounds or not, it's always difficult to say, but I think it's uh, certainly worth considering. I've got a so huge thing for this. I've got a huge thing for this French team because World Cup '98 is my favourite World Cup. I think. Yeah, I love this I, French team. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. Actually, '98 was great. Yeah, sorry, Adam. When, when you say that um, they ha- they had a striker that they just developed a striker they'd not seen before, or is that a striker that European football hadn't seen before? 
Yeah, I think there was... Obviously, there have been quick strikers before, but I think that level of kind of just raw pace was was something new, especially with someone like Henri, who, when you first saw him, didn't look like a composed finisher. Um, was a winger originally, of course, and yeah, you just... There was a bit of a change, I think, in what people expected of strikers. And, you you know, as I mentioned in the book, there was suddenly this obsession with just snapping up the next, inverted commas, great French striker. So you get like Arsenal going for Ali Adier and Manchester United going for Bellion and Liverpool getting in Cinema Pongo and Letalic. And you've just got, you know, everyone's going, OK, the French are producing quick <laughs> strikers. Let's just get this guy. He's really quick. He's 19 maybe it would develop into a goal scorer. And of course, none of those guys did. But yeah, I think it set the model. And, and you look at the the modern day strikers and the number of players I've found who have said Henri was their major influence. You know, Theo Walcott, Danny Welbeck, uh, Martial, Kylian Mbappe. You've got this whole generation of basically quick player who will say that they wanted to be like Henri. So, yeah, I think he was, in a subtle way, quite a revolutionary. Martial and Henri come from the same neighbourhood in Paris. Yeah, I think you're right. And then, uh, obviously, both at, both at Monaco as well. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, that goal, uh, that goal Martial scored, the first goal he scored for United against Liverpool, against wasn't Liverpool, it? yeah. Which was just like the, <laughs> the classic Henri goal. Yeah. So, Yeah. No, definitely. You talked in the um, in this chapter about the managers being less idealistic than um, than elsewhere. How how did you mean by that? I think there was just a, I think there was a different approach towards coaching. I think they thought of the managers thought of themselves as coaches, um, more like youth coaches than philosophers or tacticians. You know, one of the words they use, I think, is essentially literally translated as educator. So they'd call their kind of manager educators. So you have a lot of guys like Gerard Houllier was a teacher, I believe, and he was in charge of France. And after that failure to qualify for World Cup 94, went back and coached the under-19s and the under-21s. And I just can't imagine that happening in, in England, for example. You wouldn't have had Steve McLaren after 2008 goes, OK, I'm going to develop the under-19s. But you've just got maybe this respect for for managers who can, yeah, who can coach players and bring players through. And um, you see that with Wenger, you know, at that time was signing a lot of young players and and bringing them through and a couple of other less significant um, managerial figures. But there's just a slightly different approach to what a manager should be in France, I think. I loved your comparison as a down to Gary McAllister because I love Gary McAllister too. <laughs> that was an odd one. That was a really odd one. I found this slightly weird book about French football, English language book about French football that I'd never seen before. And it was just a collection of weird articles, basically. Some of which were like essays about the beauty of Zidane and stuff like that. And then there was just an interview with Platini. And he's like, yes, there's not many number 10s around. There's Zidane, Raquel May, Rui Costa. In England, one is, and I was expecting it to say like Burkamp or uh, Zola and he was like no Gary McAllister which is a great shout but it was just completely unexpected I love Gary McAllister he was a great player for us when he came yeah he was a great I mean really good technically and yeah I mean that that season where you won was it five trophies and he was scoring loads of crucial goals yeah that 35 yard free kick against Everton I don't remember that 
do, do you think that this is when we really start to see um, the period where English football is starting to to really try and chase the next thing? And it's not really. This is a period for me where English football isn't thinking about what it wants to do, but it's just trying to to sort of copy the next hot thing at works, right? So they had Claire Fontaine, that was a great success. We need one of those. Let's let's yeah. let's we need to do that. Let's let steal all their their fast quick strikers. And you also talk about sort of um, the the their ability to sort of recognise a defensive midfield player in France and sort of uh, Claude Makélélé comes across, educates educates English football to an extent that we we name the position after him, <laughs> but we don't understand it still at that point because we every other team is trying to get themselves a Claude Makélélé, but what they really end up with essentially is normally is a sort of a destructive player, right? A destroyer, a player more in the sort of uh, eagle biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, you're right. I think, you know, Wenger was just such a game changer here. Basically, the first foreign manager that had su- uh, succeeded, and yeah, people were kind of just wowed by his emphasis on on things that these days would be very, very standard, like I'm not smoking and not having kebabs. And... <laughs> exactly. Yeah, eating healthily, <laughs> not going to the pub after training, stuff like that. But yeah. You're right about how England started chasing, and you're right to pinpoint this as the 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 time because I don't think that was the case with Italian football. I think Italian football is always considered okay. You're going to do things that way, and you know it's a different culture. Um, and then yeah, the Makaleli thing was was interesting. Again, he's he's a figure who who features in both books, but until I researched the first book, I hadn't realised the extent to which you know Makaleli really considered that his unique skill for that position was his ball playing ability rather than his ball winning ability so that was yeah to be honest that was a slight surprise for me and and kind of made me reconsider um Makaleli as a player yeah me too and, and then it, I think it makes sense and it, especially this last sort of season just gone at Chelsea it, you're able to see the for me I was able to see the comparison more with with Conte right that maybe if you'd asked me a year ago would I have thought of Conte is this player who's more ball playing. I'd have thought, no, he's this maybe a poor man's Makaleli <laughs> to an extent. And now yeah. you think of him as a, a he's been shown as this player who can play further up the pitch and has has much more of a, a technical game to him than I maybe first gave him credit for. Yeah, I think I think you're right to make that comparison. And um, yeah, it was interesting to find a couple of Makaleli quotes where he was was praising Kante and saying that he was his successor in the role so yeah there's a lot of similarities between the two I think Do you think there's something predominantly French about them that allows them to be so good at that? Well that, yeah I mean that's an interesting question and that's one thing that I tried to I tried to find a kind of parallel for I tried to find some kind of root of it and they they do seem more accepting that some guys are just going to be the I very much like the, the link to sort of to, to domestiques and to cycling. That very much. Yeah, yes, that, that was, was great. That bit. Yeah, well, I'm pleased you say that. I was, uh, yeah, it was one of those things where you're like, I don't know whether to to put that in or not. And and I kind of asked a few French journalists do do journalists or pundits ever call players like Makaleli the domestique? And the answer is no. Um, which, yeah, took me by surprise because it just seems such a obvious parallel to me between the 
yeah, two I guess their two biggest sports. Yeah. And and then we go on to two thousand and two when they defend their World Cup. Um you talk about the you put into quite some detail on the Senegal game. I, re- I did write colonial arrogance next to it. Is there any sort of? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether I was the, that's the right thing or not. But they seemed. You, you talked about the fact that if you are a um, a very good African player that's lived in France for a while, you automatically should be choosing France as people quite accepting of Vieira to do. Or if you're sort of second generation. Uh, migrant then you choose to play for France and you came upon this sort of team of talented Senegalese players and um, maybe they felt a bit sniffy about the fact that if they were that good they'd been playing in our team um, and they, did they take it a bit easily in that respect against them do you think? Well I think I mean one I think there probably was a culture of arrogance that kept it crept in with the France side after winning the two trophies and maybe that would have been the case regardless of their opponents in terms of the the players playing for Senegal, I th- I think that was probably a little bit overplayed, you know, based upon the fact that Vieira was born in Senegal and played in France. But you know, the vast well, I think there was two players in that Senegal squad who were born in France rather than Senegal. So these are guys who have grown up in Senegal, and, and you know, the vast majority of them, I dare say, would have continued to play for Senegal and. You can compare that to a quote from Henri that is later in the book where he says, you know, if there was a team for for Guadeloupe where his parents were from, then they would have played for Guadeloupe. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on there. But I think that the the key factor really is um, Senegal were a good team, like a really good team and and obviously got to the quarterfinals that year. and just completely surprised France with how good they are, which shouldn't have come as a, as a surprise because I think 21 of the 23 players were playing in France at that time. But their their game plan is great. And France had some problems. Zidane wasn't fit. France hit the bar and the post. You know, there was it was one of those games where things could have gone the other way. But um, yeah, it was it was a strange a strange situation where France were the big flops at that tournament. They were the holders and the favourites and went out in the first round. And yet one of the big surprises was Senegal, who was, you know, they were often considered a, a France B team and had a player up front in Juve, who was less successful at Liverpool, um, who who fit into the mould of this kind of ultra-quick French, and in inverted commas, striker. I remember him from the um, AFCON the year before, and okay, they sort of yeah. stuck him out on this wing, and you think, well, who the hell is this guy? He's fantastic. You sort of saw him line up against France, and... I remembered him because I think he got his hair sort of bleached, didn't he? So I sort of remembered. Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember yeah. him from that, and I thought, yeah. fantastic! I can't wait to watch this. And he didn't let me do. Yeah, it's a show on the Afcon because because I remember that as well. And you know, sometimes you have these players who would like break stars of the cup. But I remember there being so much hype about him going into that World Cup because he'd been so good at the Afcon. I think Liverpool had already signed him, hadn't they? Yeah. I think they snapped him up just before the tournament, so there was already you know all eyes on him. So. Yeah, I mean, one fact I found, um, well, with the help of Opta, I found that I included was that no one else has been offside more in a single game in the history of the World Cup than Juf was against France in that game. I think it was offside <laughs> 10 times, which in 90 minutes is remarkable. So is that more to the fact that um, he's fast and the ageing French backline couldn't just turn around in time? Is that sort of Because they were getting on a bit, weren't they? Yeah, I think they were all the wrong side of 30 by that point. Yeah, so... And I think it also speaks about how 
you know, there was a big emphasis on football in that time on, on players running in behind. It was... I remember watching Arsenal games and it wasn't unusual to see an Elka be offside four times in the first half and you just don't have that now. I think the, there's an average of about three offsides per game in, in the Premier You know, a pretty um, blunt approach, just knock the ball in behind and get, get him running in. Can we move on to my favourite chapter? Portugal. Yeah. yeah. This is my favourite. Um, only one mention of Sergio Conceição, I think, disappointingly. <laughs> yeah, you talk about Diego Fuzera yeah. and your underrated players. He would be my vote. Oh, I've just realised why this is your favourite chapter. Exactly. <laughs> uh, what? Hang on. Why is it your favourite chapter? I haven't talked about it. Oh, sorry. You said yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, I love him. Absolutely love him to bits. Um, your whole thing yeah. with him and Ronaldo. That was a very good passage. That piece. Yeah, that was that was nice actually. I um I I remember them kind of coming around at the same time, but I, I wasn't really aware that they had a bit of a rivalry going on i guess i shouldn't be surprised but um yeah it was fun to look at their youth career and how they were just trying to out trick each other in in matches and stuff and yeah that's one of the few chapters where i then brought it forward about what 10 years and then and then said okay 10 years later they won the euros and ended up playing with with Danny and Quaresma and ronaldo as their front three you know they just ended up producing so many good wingers and so few good strikers that they just went, okay, we'll shovel the wingers and the team together, um, which was quite nice. Nice way to end it. Yeah. I quite liked the quote. I can't remember the, the context quite of the quote now, but I think it was the one that just ended just someone with a sly dig at Charisma just saying that he'll, he'll carry on shooting with the outside of his right foot or something like that. Oh, yeah. I think it was Mourinho. <laughs> yeah. So Mourinho, Mourinho signed him at Inter. And he had rep- one at Chelsea, didn't he? It was definitely on loan at Chelsea. I don't know if Mourinho was there at that point, but you're right, it was on loan at Chelsea. Maybe maybe it was Mourinho, but yeah, Mourinho just says, yeah, at, at the moment, he just shoots with the outside of his foot. Like, <laughs> brackets, I'm going to change that. And he never did, of course. <laughs> yeah, there's only one winner there. Um, yeah, this was also my favourite one because you go into some, quite some depth about... Uh, it was, it's great to think back and think how innovative Mourinho was rather than the sort of monolith he's become today but the, the sort of innovativeness that he had and then he, he sort of inspired that in Villas Boas as well um he could have been so I mean his career suggests that he has been amazing but he could have been he could have been so lovable and amazing as well yeah that is true um yeah it was interesting to go back and look at what a kind of football philosopher he was at that point he'd obviously learned under Van Howe and Bobby Robson at Barcelona. He went to Porto and he said, I promise we're going to play possession football. We're going to take the game to the opposition. Um, and the stats were quite interesting from that Champions League run in 2004, when obviously Porto won the European Cup. 10 out of the 13 games, they dominated possession. The only exceptions were games where they went behind early doors and played on the counter. Mm. Fair enough. So they were not, a, they weren't a part of the bus team. They were a kind of proactive possession based team. Um, not to the extent of, Guardiola's Barcelona but at a time when when European ties were pretty cagey and pretty defensive were kind of the opposition superb shit houses too I remember the UEFA um, Cup <laughs> final against Celtic the year before and then you put the bit in about they had the most bookings but no suspensions and wrecked off sides as well <laughs> yeah that was, so I think by the end of the semi-final second leg they had two sorry they had ten players who if they'd got another booking I think a couple of them subs not the whole outfield team but they had ten players in the squad if they got a second booking, they would have missed the final, and none of them missed the final. And you know, it's 
where the detail that Mourinho was going for at that point, it just doesn't seem like a coincidence. Yeah, no, not at all. It's really interesting the bit where you're there where you talk about how he 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 changed the game again, sort of as we alluded to earlier with Wenger and sort of, and sort of food and nutrition and diet, but sort of preparation and uh, analysis is it, taken to a level now. But we've we saw this season with the the Derby County Leeds United Bielsa thing that sort <laughs> of that's a standard, right? As that's that's what you do in elite football now, but. Mourinho was the king of that. Yeah, so there was a lot of um, there was a lot of underhand scouting. I think at that point, I think uh, I think Villas Boas was probably, you know, his chief uh, trying to find his way into stadiums through the the back exit for for training sessions and stuff to to find out what what eleven was was going to be up against them. And yeah, Mourinho puts a huge emphasis on opposition scouting and finding out all about the team he's playing against. And at that point, um, that level of detail wasn't wasn't common, basically. I often wonder about getting that sort of level of detail. And you sort of say about um, showing DVDs. Each player had their own DVD, the player they're coming up this weekend. And a, some, a player can only take in so much information, Carl, before the rest of it all becomes sort of like blurred that you can't sort of think about yeah i think you're right i think there's a level where you just yeah you can't take it anymore and, yeah. and even if you do take it in whether you action that on the pitch so yeah I, I think managers have learned really to kind of give information to players in in more bite-sized chunks than maybe was the the standard at that point and do, do you think that that was something that Mourinho was at the forefront as well because when i think of him in that early stage you think of someone who's um, obviously got this, this grounding in in sort of tactics and, and can set up a team, but he also has, he marries up this sort of such high level of emotional intelligence that his ability to to read a situation, to, to get his team to, to a siege mentality in his team, but also you hear these stories of him set, preparing his team and saying like, the referee's going to bottle it. He's going to send one of us off. When they when we get a red card, this is what we're then going to do. And when that then comes true, and he appears to be this sort of this soothsayer, then that only doubles your your desire to run through brick walls for him, right? Yeah, I think so. That seems to be the case. And yeah, as well as being a good tactician and and someone who put a lot of emphasis on scouting, he he was a really good man uh, man manager at that point, and indeed was for most of his career. And, Obviously, that's unraveled in the last few years, but uh, yeah, he he was good at getting the best out of players who previously had been playing for mid-table Portuguese sides. So, yeah, incredible job to. I mean, winning the European Cup with Porto was was just incredible achievement, really. And I'm, you know, still probably the most unlikely European Cup success of the modern era. Well, apart from Istanbul, obviously. Apart from Istanbul, and yeah, that's a. Uh, it was a funny time, that, 2004, 2005. <laughs> I don't know what was going on. It's yeah. funny you say about running through walls, because Wesley Schneider, when he was in Milan um, under Mourinho, he was saying how he was having a tough time with it. His form was bad and he wasn't training very well. And after about sort of three, four weeks, Mourinho called him into his office. Um, Schneider thought he was going to be in for some sort of bollocking or something like that for not pulling his weight. And Mourinho said, go home two weeks. Um, <laughs> yeah. And okay. Schneider said, at that point, I've done anything for him. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah. It's interesting. I guess I guess that is sometimes the approach for players. But yeah, I mean when you when you think of a player who's got the best out of 
Deco, um, Schneider, Mr. Ozil, you know, flair players, creative players, the kind of players that people think he doesn't like, but yeah, sometimes he sometimes he's very good with them. And when you look at oh sorry, when you look at it, and from a sort of a coaching tree point of view, that you can you can really see that that link to Van Gaal, and when he talks about. He doesn't believe in that. Like we said earlier, he doesn't believe in the player. He believes in the system, and he, it's he's all about training them to be able to think to to make the right decision. Right? He he almost wants a a hive mind in his team. Yeah, that that's true. And um, yeah, I mean, obviously, Marie. You know, you say earlier about Guardiola and Van Howen. Obviously, Mourinho is another one who who studies really. For two years under Van Howe as, as an assistant manager, and yeah, it's interesting that they both come from that same, uh, yeah, have a big same coaching influence in in Van Howe, who, who kind of reappears throughout the book in various guises. I mean, it, it was lunacy, right, that he ever thought he was getting anywhere near the Barcelona job in 2008. Well, Mourinho. Yeah. Uh, I guess so. I mean, he'd obviously played more defensively with Chelsea, but... Yeah, I mean, he 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 was the manager to, you know, the probably the the most revered manager in Europe at that point. So, I kind of get why he was surprised to be overlooked for Guardiola, who'd just been managing the B team, because Mourinho had won the cup, he'd won two Premier League titles. He had previously studied at Barcelona and and understood how they wanted to play. I think in hindsight, it seems mad, but at the time, I think it was a it was obviously a pretty bold call to go for Guardiola. Sliding doors moment, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna experiment with this light as well because uh, <laughs> okay. it's gone a bit dark in here. Still looks really still looks really light outside, but in my room it's pitch black, so let's give this a go. The switch is under here somewhere. That's a bit better. There yeah. we go. I can see properly now. Fair enough. Um Should we jump across the Iberian Peninsula to Spain then? That's a good Good segue. That's seamless, isn't it? It's almost like it's scripted. <laughs> um, okay, this is so we get to my, my favourite chapter. Of the this book. is your favourite chapter. Is it gone? I'll let you do this one then. No, no, you go. No, no, no you go. You're, You're the leader. Huh? You're the leader. Well, okay. I, I just follow. I go. I go to your beat, Chris. All right. I'll, I'll say. Um, Michael Adam would like about Spain. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute stood up. Absolute stood up. Uh, well, it's just my favourite part of the book because I, I am a little bit of a Pep Guardiola pervert, aren't I? So <laughs> not just not just Pep. Oh. Um, and I think when you're then talking about a team that's for, for my the, some of the best football that we've ever seen, right? And it's sort of a amalgamation of a, of this following on from this this Dutch football that we talk about at the very beginning of the book. And and for me, I think that when that. A lot of people talk about football tactics as being cyclical and things coming round and and it being almost like fashion and trends. But I think that sometimes you have things that are so big that they're essentially a paradigm shift and that we're never going to go back there. And I think I really do think that that's what Ajax is in, or that Dutch football is the change. And you start to see, I think... Uh, the second chapter where you're talking about Italy is almost an attempt to try and hold on to some of that. And I suppose in a very stubborn Italian way, they're, they're still trying. But as as European football becomes more homogenised, 
we are essentially getting closer to a period where a lot of people are playing Dutch football, right? And is, uh, for me, that 2008, 2010, 12 Barcelona team, is, is that at its absolute peak? Yeah, I think you're right. I think um, the different stations, but you can kind of see which countries are attempting to move things forward and which are not. And Italy is the obvious one that is not. Portugal is, I'd say, is progressive, but also ends up being a little bit more defensive with Mourinho's reputation. And then, yeah, it comes to Spain, and that's just a leap into positive football and proactive football. And and yeah, of course, a lot of the a lot of the influences are Dutch. A lot of the the players and managers had had worked under Dutch coaches before. So, yeah, and actually, in terms of writing this, this was the Spanish section was actually the second section I wrote. So I did the Dutch one first, and then I went to the Spanish one because there were so many kind of cross-influences and cross-pollination that, yeah, they kind of went together. So there's, um, yeah, an obvious link there in footballing terms. What's your favourite chapter? That's a good question. Um... I, I mean, I don't want to agree with you for the sake of it, but I liked in the Portuguese one because it was um, it was just a, a footballing style that I don't think had really been written about. And I think that, you know, it was just kind of framing a kind of new argument. But I think in terms of the stories, the, the early stuff is better because the 90s, it was just, A, people were much less professional, so there was just funny stories <laughs> going on. And B, I think a lot of it's just been forgotten about. Like, if I tell you a kind of funny story from, like, five years ago in football, people are probably still talking about it on Twitter. Yeah. But then going back and discovering stuff from, like, World Soccer magazine from 1994, it was like, okay, this will be, you know, people will enjoy this story. But, uh, yeah, lots of lots of competing sections for my favourite, I guess. <laughs> um, you talk about Messi as well. Um, you talk about Messi in the yeah. 2011 Champions League semi-final my favorite goal ever and piece of commentary ever that what that second goal yeah the the yeah real madrid run if yeah. you've ever heard it with peter drury commentary it's amazing yeah another one you mean yeah that was great because that classico series had been so scrappy and so aggressive and such attention on the referee and and messi had been pretty quiet until you know because it was like four classicos in 18 days. 21 days yeah. 18 days and they'd, they'd been rubbish. And Messi, to be honest, hadn't done much. And then, obviously, he'd scored the first goal in that game and then just scores that goal. Yeah, I mean, that was incredible. That was, I mean, that's, for me, that's the highlight of of uh, that kind of end-of-season run for Barcelona because, yeah, they kind of, uh, yeah, that was the big game, I guess, of all the of all the Clasicos in that point. That was the big one and he settled it. That actually brought a lot to my throat when he scored that, and Drury did the old wonderful, wonderful thing afterwards. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. No, it was. I, I remember watching it at the time, and yeah, this is brilliant. It was fantastic. Um, for what tactic? I mean, if it was all working so well with Barcelona and Messi was settled, and everything. Why did they sign Ibrahimovic? For what tactical reason would they have wanted to do that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think first and foremost. Guardiola had tried to sell Eto when he first came in. There were question marks about Eto and his discipline and his attitude. And they kind of continued into Guardiola's spell, even though Eto did very well. So yeah, he tried to he tried he knew he or he believed he had to freshen up the side with another striker. And went for a guy, and I must confess at the time I thought 
Ibrahimovic to Barcelona was going to be the most exciting thing ever because this was an incredible number nine going to a team who didn't have that kind of player. And it was, it was odd. You know, looking back, it was odd to get a player in like that. And the thing that brings him down, really, Ibrahimovic, is is not necessarily his own attitude. It's that Messi wants to play as that false nine. And, mm. um, and they just can't find a way to make it work with both of them. So they end up selling Ibrahimovic onto Milan at, you know, quite a big loss, really. But you thought someone would have foreseen that, wouldn't you? Or someone would have said to Pep, where do you envisage playing these two players together? Yeah, I mean, I think in the first season, Guardiola really just saw that Messi as a false nine is very much an alternative and didn't really, for whatever reason, didn't see it as, you know, what he wanted to do in the long term. And and his plan was for Messi to go back to the right wing. Um, and Messi basically wasn't having any of that. So it really stems from Messi's wishes as much as Guardiola's in that in that case. And that Argentina Olympic team of... Um... Aguero, Di Maria, Ricoyomi and Messi. That's a podcast in itself, isn't it? Yeah, I must admit, I don't I don't think I saw any of that team play, actually. I, I mean, when the Olympics come around, I'm not really watching the football, yeah. to be honest. It's the, it's the one time <laughs> I'm not watching the football. So, yeah, that, I mean, that was that was Usain Bolt's mad Olympics. So, I was, I was, my mind was elsewhere. So, I've no idea what was happening in the football, to be honest, but it sounds great. I think Mascarano was in that team as well, wasn't he? Probably. I think he was, yeah. I think he was. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder whether sort of the... It, are they going to be... Is Barcelona going to going to get itself stuck in a situation like it did sort of post-Dream Team now? Mm-hmm. Do you foresee that in some terms of the shadow of Guardiola and that team being so great over this, this team that they'll maybe... I don't know whether they're going to lose sight of themselves in the same way they did in terms of going on a spending spree and or whether they moved to bring in for academy players that aren't good enough. I it does seem that they're dominating the Spanish league at the moment, I suppose, but maybe that's because Real Madrid are letting them. But they seem to be a step off sort of the, the heights of European football, even with the best player that the world's ever seen. Kevin Gallon. Uh, yeah I mean they do seem very dependent on Messi and I guess the question mark is what will come after that Um, but yeah it's it's, it's not a great philosophy at the moment I think they've completely moved away from the emphasis they had on on dominating the ball and playing three in midfield and playing that kind of Guardiola way they're a lot more pragmatic and yeah, a little bit less Barcelona, to be honest, and seem increasingly dependent on Messi for individual magic. So, yeah, they're in a strange place at the Barcelona now. They're clearly trying to revitalise that old spirit by signing Frankie de Jong, who, of course, is another one who's continuing the Dutch influence there. Um, so, yeah, I hope that they will um, kind of move back to a, a more typically Barcelona way of playing. And, and just... quite, isn't it? Have you had any? Um, have you had any? Uh, not abuse on Twitter. Uh, there was a brief moment where um, I noticed that you did. Men- I think you refer to Messi and sort of in those terms that I did just there, sort of as the greatest player in the uh, ever or something like that. And I know that there's a certain large part of Twitter that would very much fight against any claim that you're not respecting a certain Juventus player. Or yeah, uh, maybe yeah. I can't remember that, but that is what I 
That is what I think. So it's probably what I wrote. Um, yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't had any backlash from that. I oh, think that's good. I think people who dish out Twitter abuse probably aren't able to get four hundred pages into a. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll, uh, a very fair point. It, um, it, yeah, if, it, you should, it's, you're better off burying that thing midway through a five hundred page book and just tweeting it because yeah. uh, it'll be hidden. Have you seen um, Tim Vickery's theory on Messi versus Maradona? Um, uh, no, I'm not sure I have. Tim Vickery suggests that Maradona is the better player because he doesn't think Messi would have been able to cope with the abuse that defenders gave number 10s back in the 80s. That's the reason as to why he prefers Maradona. Yeah, I think it's a fair... I think that's probably a fair point. Um, I think the flip side is... I think it's more difficult to get space these days, you know, for a player like Messi. You don't have... Yeah, the game's just more compact and you have to do everything quicker, but I think it's a reasonable a reasonable argument. I don't know if you guys have seen that Maradona film yet, but... No, um, I'm going to go on Thursday. It's not going it's, to be cool. Yeah, I mean, like, it's great in many reasons, but one of the things is it really brings out how much physical you know, violence almost he's having to put up with. So it's, yeah, it's it's probably a fair argument from Tim Vickery, yeah. So do you think now, as you sort of move between the sections that we've got now going from Spain, Germany, and then on, on to England, that there is a, during that period, there is a very much a link, right, that you, Guardiola is going from one to the other to England, and I suppose Klopp then joins him. Yeah. Is, is that the sort of, the great, tactical story of the last sort of 10 years as a less so than maybe the countries that is actually the movement of those two and their sort of similar and competing philosophies at the same time yeah no i think you're completely right and uh yeah once you get to the spain section and you've got spain germany england and obviously the the key factor is that guardiola is moving between those countries at those points so yeah the the rise of german football i think was was first and foremost about a long-term kind of youth development thing as as we've read about and heard about many times but also you have the the best two managers around i think are working in in germany at that time with klopp and guardiola so yeah it was um interesting kind of period to research obviously a very recent period but football and country i probably knew less about than italy or spain uh just because i don't I personally don't watch it as much as I do La Liga and Serie A. But, um, yeah, you've got obviously two great managers there. And what's happening with the national team is is pretty interesting as well. And how much of all that goes back to Euro 2000 and um, Das Reboot from there? Yeah, I mean, definitely they, they made a very concerted effort to play a different style of football, more proactive style of football, and, and to bring through youth players, which... You know, Raphael Honigstein has written that book, uh, Das Reboot, which focuses on, you know, the very technical and logistical challenges that they had in terms of trying to progress the football. So, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't focus too much on that. Um, but in terms of in terms of the strategy, they kind of is really all about stopping playing with a sweeper, uh, thing which German teams did really into the late 90s and early 2000s and, and basically playing a more modern style of football, I guess. Is Gegenpressen a unique German thing, is it? Or where, where else did Klopp get that from? 
So maybe not uniquely German, because I think the focus on regaining the ball quickly was another Dutch thing, you know, in terms of the Dutch style of pressing. But certainly the modern equivalent of, or sorry, the modern interpretation of of just focusing on that as maybe the key factor in the the game. Um, the Dutch and Spanish sides tend to do it, or tended to do it because um, they always wanted to have the ball. You know, they were possession sides. And if you lose the ball, OK, you go and get the ball. Whereas I think Klopp's interpretation was more, it's just a good opportunity when the opposition is starting to counterattack. If we can get the ball, we can strike quickly. And and that wasn't so much the Dutch interpretation. The Dutch interpretation was get the ball and keep the ball again. So they did the same thing, but, but for slightly different reasons, I would say. That requires a lot of buy-in for the players as well, because if you're telling a player to harass and harangue uh, the opposition for 90 minutes, they're going to waste... Or not be, they're going to use a whole lot more energy than what they would do playing a different type of game. So, if the manager's not getting results and they're playing a gig and pressing sort of game, the, the players are going to say, well, What am I running around doing all this for? We're getting no result from it. It's It's got to work, hasn't it? Yeah, definitely. I think that's that's one of the key, you know, one of the key factors in Klopp's approach. He is a very good man manager, he gets people on board. You've seen that at Dortmund and now at Liverpool. Even I'd say even before the system was obviously working at Liverpool, he clearly created a kind of vibe, an atmosphere that players wanted to buy into. And yeah, that's certainly the case if you're going to get your attackers to be so energetic and so hardworking and so, you know, sacrificing themselves for the team. You you don't quite get on board with that, do you, Adam? You think some of that sort of personality is a bit of a facade, don't you? Uh... Because <laughs> I remember he got he got angry in a press conference and you put in our WhatsApp group the mask uh, slipped. Well, the, the mask had slipped together. Yeah, there. yeah. yeah I, I, I I know a few people who think similarly. I think but, he's very he's a very aware of the, of the uh, is it any different to what Mourinho was doing though sort of ten years ago he's very aware of the media and he knows what he's doing. Yeah, he yeah, knows what I he's wearing he, on the telly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah he I knows think he's, I think he plays it cleverly, Klopp, but. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's part of a manager, I guess. You know, they they judge so much by their media appearances that, yeah, the top ones put such a big emphasis on, yeah, appearing a certain way. I love him. I wouldn't swap him for the world. Do you think that his um, Guardiola's time in Germany has maybe had a slight detrimental effect on sort of the 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 attacking nature of his football and sort of the way that he became so obsessed with trying to stop the counter-attack and sort of bringing his full-backs inside to sort of uh, squeeze that space and sort of occupy it. But if you compare that to his Barcelona team when he had Dani Alves flying, flying down right wing, that, does that inhibit him slightly or does it just allow him to express that in other areas of the pitch? Yeah, that's a good question. Um... I guess the counter-argument to that, to move it forward to the kind of Manchester City team, where they often have the full-backs coming inside, would be that, you know, you have De Bruyne and Silva playing so much higher up the pitch than you would have had Xavi and Iniesta, for example. So there's, I, I think it's, it's probably the same level of attacking threat, just with a, a different combination of players. But yeah, you're right, the, the full-back kind of thing, that changes, you know to go from someone completely overlapping to coming inside to prevent the counter-attack, yeah, was a complete product of um, of his experience in Germany, I guess. 
Which makes spending fifty million pound on Kyle Walker a bit strange, right? If you, <laughs> yeah, I, no, I think you're right. There's there's a kind of contradiction there. They get someone who's just you being a pure overlapper, and he's now kind of asked to be a central kind of defender slash midfielder. Yeah, I don't think the Walker thing has entirely worked out for City. I'm not quite sure what player he is, he is now. He's he's neither what he used to be nor quite what Guardiola wants from him. So maybe that's why they're looking at uh, signing João Cancelo, who I think is going to cost about £50 million or something, which is, yeah, another incredibly expensive defender for them. He's definitely better paid when he was at Tottenham, though. He's definitely improved as a player. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he's, he's, he's better tactically, but he's... Um, yeah, I guess he's just he's not he's not the kind of level of Lam or Alaba that Guardiola had at uh, at Bayern, and noisy the kind of Tottenham Walker. So he's just in a kind of a funny kind of in between position, I'd say for Tottenham. Hmm. Do you think that was I, I like in uh, sort of the way you sum up in the final chapter talk about sort of um, English football being sort of. Uh, like a repository of sort of all of this football from all around Europe and sort of holding a mirror up to it. And I suppose sort of the economic power of the Premier League allows it to essentially become a melting pot right, of all the, the the best ideas that Europe and I suppose world football has to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, that feels a little strange in an environment that, as we talked about before, is, is for me, is behind the times of, footballingly in terms of the conversations it has about football so we're almost being being spoiled right and I suppose that's changing with every sort of year and generation and sort of a blog like yours wouldn't would I don't know whether it would have had an audience in sort of 1990 whereas now when you've got kids who are brought up and sort of the amount of playing video games playing FIFA football manager reading about this having sort of all this sort of great footballing content at their disposal to read about does that mean that we are now getting a sort of a breed of English players that are more tactically astute and more and think about the game a lot more than sort of their compatriots of 20 years ago did I'd like to think so I mean I think the culture in England has changed a little bit but I still think there's probably quite a big gap between you know what what we're talking about on blogs and Twitter and podcasts compared to, you know, the general environment the players will grow up in. And I think that's why it's important to have good pundits. You know, you get someone like Jamie Carragher, for example, who I think is, has said he's not really interested in going into coaching. And people say, well, that's a shame because, you know, he won't impart that his knowledge onto young players. But actually, by broadcasting on Sky to a million people or whatever, that's really helping to... Yeah. To change the conversation. So, yeah, I think we're in a better place than we were 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But, you know, when I speak to people who who live in Portugal or Spain or Holland, they still think, you know, when they say English football coverage, they still think it's a little bit simplistic and a little bit basic. So maybe we've we've changed to be, you know, less behind the times, but maybe still not at the kind of the forefront of, of where we should be. Do you play football manager? Uh, I don't anymore, actually. I, obviously, back in the day, I was a player. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a little bit too similar to, you know, day-to-day life. <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, no, I haven't. I must admit, I haven't played for a few years. But yeah, I mean, I think that's been a big thing as well. You know, maybe I didn't appreciate it until until sometimes the criticism and and people were be, being critical of talking about tactics too much and saying, oh, it's the football manager generation or whatever. But yeah, that was just a part of my kind of football upbringing if you like you know we thought about football in those those terms and it wasn't a kind of obscure way of looking at things you you looked at your lineup and you you gave them tactical instructions and and that you know try you know to a certain extent replicates what what's happening in football does Owen Coyle play football manager <laughs> he's probably got more time for it now I guess but, <laughs> but, uh, yeah I mean it's they've been quite good at the, in recent years football manager at finding examples of you know, managers now who used to be obsessed with it. So I know VS Boas was obsessed with it and a couple of the other young managers. So, yeah, it's, it's, clearly, um, it's clearly helpful for some young managers. Yeah. Um, and the, the, so the final chapter of, uh, of the book, obviously, is, is England, and it, it goes all the way to 2020. Right? So we're, we're a little bit of a crystal ball looking into the future. Um, yeah. I'm not saying that we're to sort of guess beyond that in terms of which country, but sort of, do you have any sort of ideas or predictions on sort of how you think that tactically football might might go in that time? Like for me, I think that a big factor in sort of in how football tactics might change is that I think that there's a lot more of a homogeneity between the sort of players that academies are producing nowadays. Mm-hmm. And I think if you think back to England players, especially England players, maybe we notice it more. If I think back to England players of the past when a, a, a young player came out, you wouldn't necessarily know whether they were te- whether they had any sort of technical ability, whereas now you almost ne- don't doubt a, a young English player's technical ability mm-hmm. with, before you've seen them. Yeah, yeah, um, completely, yeah. And in this world where you had Guardiola talking about wanting to play as many midfielders as he possibly can, <laughs> is that the kind of player that academies are producing now? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think they do produce more technical players, certainly very quick players as well. There's a big emphasis on speed. Pretty much any young player who comes around, you almost take for granted they're going to be quite quick. Um, so, I mean, if, if there was to be a kind of another chapter in the book, it would be an interesting kind of decision on on what that section would be because there's not going to be any other country. There's not, there's not going to be any other country that comes to the forefront. So I guess maybe the interesting thing is when you compare our perceptions of football in 2020, let's say, to in 2000, if you go back to 2000, people thought that the US were going to become a really dominant football country, and that hasn't happened. I mean, they didn't even qualify for the last World Cup. This kind of happened with Australia, where they had a great generation of players, but that has faded away. People thought that on the back of Nigeria and Cameroon winning the Olympic tournaments, that they were going to become huge forces, but we haven't seen those teams progress. So I guess the interesting thing is, Europe's actually more dominant than ever when 20 years ago people were thinking, okay, this is the last period where European football is going to be dominant. Even South American football now is not really competing at the level it used to. Obviously, it's still the second biggest continent, but you know, the, I, I need to check the facts here, but semi-finalists for the last few mm-hmm. World Cups, I think, have all been three out of four European teams. I need to check that, but it's been more European That's dominant right. than, than ever before. So, I guess maybe that's the next thing to explore, you know, or, or yeah, maybe look at the other way. Why, why there hasn't been more progress from some other continents? What about for you personally? Go on. 
I was gonna, just my, my final question was: Do you think you can get a third book out of the back pass rule? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I think I think I've pretty much exhausted all the chat about that. Um, I definitely read no. that though. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where people people just really enjoy the concept of it. You know, people both people who remember those initial days of confusion and some kind of younger viewers who who haven't seen that style of football and i'm just amazed that you had well, this that was, so that was me right so um i i don't i can't although i was alive i can't remember a, a pre-bass uh yeah. era and um i remember coming to i came to the talk you gave when when you launched the mixer at the london football writing festival and oh, nice one. Yeah, and, yeah. and you had the um the, the youtube clips and watched one of denmark in in uh 92 and you're just like what is what is this and then when you, I came to the a similar talk you did for the the new book, and to see yeah. the same clip, I just I was laughing to myself inside. So. Yeah, it was it was good. And, uh, I was originally going to line up exactly the same clip, but this time it was um, yeah, like a compilation of all their back passes. So yeah, I think um, it's when they turn around and take the free kick from halfway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just so good. Straight I, back to the goalkeeper. It's, Honestly, it's, mad. it's great showing that to people who, like I said, don't remember it before the time because obviously that's an exaggeration, but you can just be like, yeah, this is why 92 is the start date for a lot of things in modern football because it was a big cut-off point and a big rule change that, that changed how the game was played. You mentioned it in the mixer because the first couple of weeks of Match of the Day after the rule came in were brilliant fun to watch. And it was yeah. somebody playing against Leeds. and It might have been Wimbledon, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, Wimbledon was um, like Roger Joseph, I think his yeah. name was. That's right. Yeah. I remember watching the sort of confusion on match of the day, and then you mentioned it in the mixer. And I, that's, it's really, this is why I was saying at the start, why I sort of, even though it's a tactics book, I still really sort of enjoyed it because you get those sort of little pangs of nostalgia, and I remember that, and those sort of things pop into your head every now and then. Yeah, definitely. No, I'm pleased to hear that. Yeah, that was that was the ultimate, the back pass change and the confusion, and uh, yeah, some absolutely great incidents in that in that first uh, first Premier League season. Yeah. And what about for you then? What are you, what are you up to next? Uh, don't know. I've I've got no book, and uh, yeah, hopefully do something at some point in the future. But yeah, it's been fairly solid three three and a half years of of uh, more than anything else, just reading footballers' autobiographies, which is like <laughs> you know it can get a little bit repetitive. I feel like I'm less intelligent overall after <laughs> three years of like not reading any other books or yeah not taking in that much information aside from us you know what rude hullet thought about wimbledon in 1997 or whatever <laughs> so um i don't know take a bit of a break but yeah it seems like this one's gone down well so you're always interested to kind of do another one but it's you know obviously it's just finding the the subject matter and and finding a structure that works as well because I think I think that's what worked well for this book. I think if it was just thirty years of kind of random European history, it maybe wouldn't have worked as well. But I think being able to break it down into different sections kind of made the book a bit more manageable and kind of tells the story in a, a structural way. I hope. Uh, well, final question: the average weekend in a Premier League season, uh, how many games of football do you watch? I think quite, probably a little bit less than I used to. So to be perfectly honest, I've actually changed my I changed my approach at the start of this season. Where before I used to watch maybe one or two games 
really in depth and watch the highlights of everything else. And because I was doing a little bit less journal focusing on the book, I kind of I watched more highlights, but more in-depth highlights. So I kind of I tried to make notes about almost every game. And so I can kind of go back and just look at what I thought of that game or, you know, a big incident that was happening. So, yeah, it's tough to put a number on it, but a fair amount, a fair amount. Have you got some Ian McIntosh type dossier, have you? Yeah, kind of, <laughs> funny you should say that. He's got, he does his dossiers in a different way to me. Let's put it that way. His is like a big, this is like a big like appearances spreadsheet. You know, like the kind of thing yeah, you get. I've seen, I've, I think I've seen the photos of it on Twitter. Yeah. And he's like, I, got, I don't completely get that. He's like, oh, it just keeps in your head. He's like <laughs> one of those. He's like one of those people who goes to a cricket game and scores himself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I kind of. I kind of get that, but like, that means that all I remember is the lineups, you know. And it's like, yeah. you know, I'm generally trying to look for like a tactical pattern or something. So, yeah, my notes are computerized and searchable, you know. So I, I just, I just search like at the end of the season. So if I'm kind of thinking, oh, what did Özil get up to or something, I just search Özil. And then it comes through and I've got all the notes I made about Ozil, which are not always complimentary, but, <laughs> you know, sometimes you find a game where he played well. So uh, that's something to bring into the argument, I guess. It's in some sort of it's a stream of consciousness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Well, thank you ever so much for joining us. I really, really very, very much appreciate this. Um, how did they get hold of your book? Uh, is it all good bookshops and well-known websites? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly all good bookshops, they're always, they're always the best way to, to get a book in my view. But of course there is various online outlets you can get them. Uh, so yeah, wherever, wherever you usually get your books from. I've been surprised actually since I started doing this, the number of people who have messaged me to say, where can I get your book? And I, I, I don't, I, I don't really know what the question, I don't know whether they're asked, like whether they don't know whether the book will be in bookshops or they just don't buy books. So they don't know that the usual channels, but I was always kind of surprised when people said, Oh, you can get it from these places, but it, it seems like a, a question that has to be answered. So yeah, the usual channels is basically my, okay. my message. <laughs> wherever, cool. wherever you get books from, you can get it from there. It's cool. All good bookshops, all good bookshops, some bad bookshops. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it's yeah. called zonal marking. Yes, it's called zonal marking. And uh, yeah, if you, if you want to start with a, an English version, then the mixer is out in in paperback. It's probably about half the price. But uh, yeah, if you want to do this one, then it's out now. Okay. And zonamarking.net is your website? Yeah, there's there's not much on it nowadays. It's handy for the book by, by being virtually the same name. But uh, yeah, it's still just about running. My, my domain has not expired yet. Oh, fair enough. Uh, and if they want to follow you on Twitter, how do they do that? and that's zonal underscore marking uh someone had got in with zonal marking before me and when I, yeah when i had to set it up they had two followers and now they've got about 250 or something <laughs> so, you, you know you know 248 of those are people who think that's you exactly so I'm <laughs> 200 down and uh apparently yeah someone told me someone who worked for twitter told me like oh you can request it and like, because they haven't they haven't tweeted since two thousand and nine or something, but uh, yeah, I'm 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 kind of 
I'm used to the underscore now. So it probably cause more confusion if I if I switch. <laughs> Fair enough. Adam, if they want to follow you, how do they do that? Uh, uh, Adam, I say 101. Okay, you can follow me at Etchingham 77 um, I don't think we've got any more podcasts coming up lately, have we? Doesn't got like no, so I think we'll probably be back in August. Uh, I know well, the girls. There might be an unusual efforts podcast, right? Yeah, I was going to say there might be an unusual efforts. Are you aware of unusual efforts? Yeah, yeah, they're they're doing some. Well, they're putting out loads of content at the moment for obvious reasons. Yeah. Yeah, they record our podcast and we put them out on their behalf. So that's uh, at unusual efforts on Twitter. Um, and I think that is it, Michael. Thank you ever so much for joining us. No, my pleasure. Thank you very much for getting me on and really enjoyed the chat. So uh, thank you very much for the the interesting questions. And uh, yeah, it's made me kind of remember some stuff about the book that I've forgotten, to be honest. So thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Brilliant. Thank you. And always remember to keep your man on the post.